Hi, everyone. Welcome back to One Decision, where we delve deep into the kinds of choices you hope you never have to be responsible for, or maybe you do. Either way, we are your inside roller coaster track through them. Sometimes there are zero great options, but someone has to take one of them. This episode, the moral and PR minefield that has frequently become the Olympics. Maybe you just enjoyed yourself a nice spate of sofa spectating there with the Tokyo Games amid a raging pandemic where upwards of 90% of the local population at one point wanted them canceled. But have you wondered how that decision is really made of where to host them? Google no more. We are talking to the longest serving member of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, an Olympic swimmer himself for Canada, Richard Pound. He was even named by Time Magazine, one of the most influential people in the world. And he was one of those people who faced the decision to hold the next Olympics in 2022, if the planet still exists by then, in the People's Republic of China. First, let's set the scene with someone we voted one of the most interesting people in the world who's made his share of tricky decisions, former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Welcome back. Hi, Michelle. It's nice to be with you again. So do the Olympics play a role in the game of geopolitics? It's a huge opportunity to display you know, your country at its best. So, uh, of course, geopolitics come into it. I, uh, that's certainly my, my, my firm view. Now, Richard, I know your father was an Olympian and an extremely unique one. Well, my father was in the 1948 Olympics and they were held in London and they were held really on a shoestring because it was in the aftermath of the war. Um, my father was one legged. He had had an amputation as a child after a really serious accident, and he walked on crutches. But he, he, was, he was a phenomenal athlete. He played one-legged tennis extremely well. He was a very good water skier. Um, you know, as a family, if we went for a walk, my father would walk 10 miles on crutches without even thinking about it. That is very British. He was a very tough, uh, hard man, but he coxed the British Olympic eight. And they won the silver medal. And he was a well-known figure in the rowing world because, you know, legs are quite heavy. And actually, if you remove one leg, he, he was quite light. So he was ideal. Oh. Now there's a minimum weight for a, for, for, for a cox. If you're under the minimum weight, you have to carry weights in the boat. Oh, my gosh. But, I, I mean, the, the, the ironic story is that in the parade in the stadium at the beginning of the Olympic Games when all the nations prayed through, the British Olympic Committee had banned my father from, from marching with the rest of the team because he was on crutches. That is awful. But anyway, he was, he was a great one for, for, for propagating, as it were, the Olympic ideal. So now China will host the Olympics once again, next winter in Beijing. But it's happening at a precarious time in terms of China's unsportsmanlike behavior, you could say, in the world arena. Well, it's attempting, you know, to achieve superpower status. And its ambition, you know, I think is to displace the United States as the primary power on the planet. And of course, it's based on a completely different value system 
than the one that you know we adhere to in Western democracies. It's an attempt by the Chinese to re rewrite, recreate the international order, which has you know governed generally world affairs since the end of World War II. In so many ways, China seems willing to stop at nothing to win, whether it is stealing intellectual property, hacking, surveillance, incarcerating possibly millions of an ethnic minority, or choking free speech. It's fine with this. Well, I think, you know, it feels it's impervious to criticism, external criticism. And, you know, it makes its own set of rules and it doesn't really see you know, why it should follow the West's rules. But, you know, I think it's terrified of, let's put it like this, the virus of democracy. But lately, you know, we see more fear in the business community, for example, of angering China uh, when, say, uh, media companies want to make sure that their films are China-friendly. Is the world letting China get away with too much? Well, I think the world has been letting China have too free a run. And the UK is as guilty as any country, if not a bit more. But I think we have been insufficiently critical of China, the Chinese model. And, and, and I mean, since the financial crisis of 2008, I think China's behavior with regard to the rest of the world has significantly shifted. And I think the, the, I think the catalyst for this was the Chinese assessment that American power was passed in zenith, and Xi Jinping, as it were, made a move to, as it were, make China very assertive. But I think what we're beginning to see now that China really has overplayed its hand, and it's got its timing wrong, and its assessment wrong. And I, I, I think everybody is sitting up and saying, hang on a moment, maybe we need to modulate our relationship with China much more carefully. Of course, it's very difficult to come up with the policy answers because it's not like the Cold War. Do you think there's some risk to China hosting the Olympics in terms of security or even just the stage that it gets? Well, the last time they staged it, I do remember the, the opening ceremony. I mean, it was the most extraordinary statement of the power of the, na- of, the na- of the nation stage. And you can bet your bottom dollar that, you know, the Chinese will do it again in an even more spectacular fashion. And it will be, you know, designed to impress, particularly, you know, in the developing world. I mean, China's really damaged itself in the last few years. That's my view. It's ruined its sort of soft power currency. I mean, Xi Jinping has massively overplayed his hand, in my view. And, you know, that, that internationally, they're on a downward curve. And it's not clear to me, you know, where it's going to stop. I would even go as far as to say, I, I think that Xi Jinping's leadership may be threatened at some point in the future, and, and not too distant future. And the reason I say that is that all communist leaderships are factionalized, very factionalized. You don't see that from the outside, but there are huge tensions on the inside. And Xi Jinping has spent a lot of time sort of, you know, rubbing out the opportunities that his opponents have politically. And I know you dealt with them quite a bit. Thanks, Richard. 
Now let's bring in Richard Pound. Great to have you with us. So fair to say the choice of Olympic hosts is always tricky? It, it, it is always a, a difficult decision. Quite often, if there are five candidates in, in the race, it, it takes five rounds of voting to get a, a simple majority, which is what's required to win. So it's difficult, and there, there are lots of uh, competing interests. Uh, you, you want to move the games around. If you can, from continent to continent, it's it's not easy. Is it always like, what do we do? Well, the, the stakes are often high, but I remember when we were doing the the 2012 games, we had we had Moscow, New York, Paris, Madrid, and London. Wow! You could put all those names in a, in a jar and 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 reach in and pull it out and say, well, you know, we're we're not giving it to somebody who can't organize these games. Got it. Okay, so when were you grappling with this? What what year was it? Normally seven years out. That means this debate started six years ago. Simpler times. Tons of cities wanted in. Europeans, Americans. So each of these cities starts exploring the possibility of a bid. But then they look at the estimated price tag from the 2014 Sochi Games and say uh, $50 billion dollars. These cities put forward referenda to their citizens to see if they might buy into this. But one after the other, they get shot down. No one could afford it. We ended up with two finalists, if you will. One, one is Azer, um, Kazakhstan in, in Almaty, and the other was China with uh, Beijing. And not easy. Um, you know, both, both are different systems of government compared to right. what we're used to. Boom, democracy's out, that democracy drops out. Boom, 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 boom. You look at your dinner plate and you got Beijing or you got Kazakhstan. Were you thinking, uh-oh, at that point? Like, here we go. Yes and no. I mean, there, there was some static back in 2008 or before 2008 when we gave Beijing the summer games. And say, yes, you're going to get, you know, you've got whatever the issue is, it's Tibet or Hong Kong or the, the Uyghurs at this point. There will be some pushback on that from people that uh, think we shouldn't do uh, games in these countries. And they don't understand that, that we don't allocate the games on the basis of politics. It's, you, you've got to make sure you allocate the games to a country that can organize them. And you're not making a political judgment. And, and, and that's part of the, the ongoing problem of an organization like the IOC, which has to be inclusive of all of the countries in the world. When we knew that, that we were settling on either Beijing or Kazakhstan, that there would be some pushback. So what did this decision come down to? Well, that was, that was the interesting thing. You know, when, when tiny Kazakhstan, relatively speaking, comes within four votes of China, there's a message in there yeah. somewhere. And, and, and it's not because, you know, your autocracy is better than the other guy's autocracy. It's just, it was, I think, a message by, from a lot of individual IOC members uh, directed at China saying, look, uh, you're, you're not as popular as you think you are. And, and this judgment, you know, 44-40 is not that you're, only 10% better than Kazakhstan in terms of being able to organize these games. So if you're an analyst in, in Beijing, you, you, know, you should be saying to the, to the leader, we've got some problems here 
or some issues at least. Now, do tough conversations go along with these votes? Are you guys like arguing amongst yourselves about who gets it? No, there's a lot of discussion beforehand. Were there any conversations or things that stuck out to you that that made the decision for you either more difficult or easier? I, I think we we would probably have had more difficulties in the end if we had uh, taken Kazakhstan, uh, because we we would have had a really really insulted uh, China on our hands, uh, which has a lot of influence. Uh, uh, around the world, and and so uh, we knew it was going to be it was going to be tough one way or another, uh, whichever one we we picked. And at the same time, when you look at the two finalists, you say maybe we haven't got the selection process right here. Maybe we have to go about uh, allocating these games in a different way. And we've changed that pretty dramatically in the last for the last uh, award of games. So that it's not just a here's your term sheet, bid against it, and and we'll vote. It's let's let's sit down and see how we can make this work for you hmm. in your country and for us at the same time. And and you know, we can be a lot more flexible than uh, than simply having a, a you know a made in Switzerland uh, uh, you know, take it or leave it. That's so interesting. That's been much more effective in, in uh, recent years. So, Richard, did you vote for China? Can you say who you voted for? Our, our votes are secret, oh. and and and, uh, and who, okay. everybody everybody thinks you voted for them, or everybody <laughs> thinks you didn't vote for them. Okay, so, so blink it. once if it was China. <laughs> blink twice. <laughs> Wait, he blinked five times. Okay, very good, Richard. Very good. So, you know, I know like the the thinking is. We want this to be a global game, so we don't look at what what huge problems might be going on in your country. And you know what? I think it's interesting because we always, like one great benchmark is the 1936 game in Berlin, right? Right. So the 1936 games in Berlin, you know, happening during the Nazi era... And the game still went on then, even though, you know, controversy was building. And so any other thing you could say, well, if we had the games in Berlin in 1936, why not have them here? But, but now that we've entered the 21st century and you look at what's happening in China with allegations of forced sterilization and you know, possibly millions of Uyghurs in these camps and allegations of torture, is it time that these things should play into the decision of who is awarded with the gift of an Olympics? Well, uh, our, our view is, is this, that we, we, are, are, we, we have to accommodate all of the countries in the world. And we do, we do that as well as we can. And we have a pretty good record, you know, of every four years having a month with all of these countries together at the same time in the same place, peacefully, competing and and we think that's a message that needs to be kept and, and not have that aspirational objective on our part of, of having a peaceful gathering with all these countries uh, hijacked by by other issues the committee knew even back in 2015 while debating that there was going to be serious pushback since then china's behavior has only become bolder and in today's world of calls for accountability there are now calls for boycotts, for cancellation. 
U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has called for all world leaders to not show up in Beijing. And the IOC will face far more scrutiny, especially if things go more wrong there. If you, if you look at these, the calls for we must boycott, that's not actually what they mean. They mean you Olympic athletes, you should have your rights taken away from you uh, to make our point. And we understand it's not going to change any conduct on the part of China. It's, it's, it's a gesture. It will bring about zero conduct change. So the same way the Moscow boycott in, in 1980 brought no conduct change on the part of the Soviet Union. And in the meantime, you've trashed the, the lives and dreams and aspirations of all of these Olympic athletes from around the world. And, and, and all of the billions of people that love to watch uh, that peaceful exercise. And it raises the question then, is there nothing that could go on in a country that is so bad that they shouldn't get the Olympics? Although, let's say something absolutely even more horrible than what's going on in China happened, then, you know, I guess the buffer would be the IOC members probably just wouldn't vote for that country. Yeah, like that's that's the safeguard of avoiding a place where something so terrible is going on. Yeah, I mean, the only times, you know, in the last 125 years where we haven't had the games uh, were world wars. Hmm. You know, there's a good reason for that. It, it's just, it's not fair to make everybody a hostage to another agenda. And they're well-meaning groups with, with well-directed concerns, but they're all directed against the political decisions that are made in China. And it's a political problem. And, and countries around the world, they know how to send messages. Mm. I mean, it'd be very easy. I mean, no government would accept any invitation to go to China and invoke trade sanctions and all sorts of other things to, to get a message through. And, and believe me, China would hear those messages. And, and that is more likely to have uh, an impact on uh, their conduct, which is really what you want. For sure. Does it not piss off the committee that after Beijing got the Olympics in 2008, which doesn't really, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but they made some kind of lip service to, oh yeah, you know, we'll pay attention to human rights. Since then, they've only cracked down on free speech and democracy, and now this issue with the Uyghurs, that it's only gotten worse. Does it matter to the IOC? Does it matter? Uh, yeah, of course it matters. I mean, in the sense that, that we're all individuals and we all have our own views on this, but as an organization, and, and you, when you're, you're voting for the Olympics, you're, you're, you're the organization. Our philosophy is we're trying to show that it's possible to have peaceful gatherings, peaceful competitions even, uh, between countries that may be almost at war or on, on very bad terms with, with others, their young people can get together and see that it's possible. I remember when I, I went to the games in, the, in 1960 at the sort of the nadir of the, the Cold War and, and, and the, the Soviet Union. I mean, these were all these two-dimensional characters. It's not Soviet swimmers. They were just as nervous as I was. I mean, some of them were throwing up before their races and, and all that. And and all of a sudden you realize they're people, they're individuals, they're different and, and they're brought up differently and their access to uh, the news and, and you know, discourse with uh, 
is is impacted, but they're people and people you can deal with. As a young man, did you feel weird um, being there during that time? No, no, no. It was just a, it was a magic uh, experience, and it it'll be a magic experience uh, for those that go to uh, to China. I mean, the place is not as important as the as the event and what the event stands for. As far as these decisions go, how does this one measure up in terms of the difficulty of the choice, especially since it only came down to two cities? It, it, it was difficult. I mean, it was difficult back in, in, the, for, in the vote for the 2008 games. I think, mm. I think Beijing won by two votes over Brisbane, Australia, or something like that. It was, a, it was very, very close. Yeah. And clearly it was a, you know, it was the first time after Tiananmen Square that China was prepared to put itself forward. Do all on the committee worry that a country like China uses the games beyond the purpose that it's supposed to be for? Well, I think I think you'd expect them to put put on a good show for their own audience. Um, is is how they organize the games? Uh, Next February, going to change my personal view of, of China? No, that's not. And, and I think it's illusory to think that that, that people are are that easily uh, manipulated in terms of their 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 views on on a country. And the reaction that we've seen to this, um, you know, coming up in U.S. Congress and the calls for boycotts and that sort of thing. Was it more than you expected, or was the did you fully expect to see these kinds of reactions? It's it's generally par for the course. I think what you know initially, the uh, the call was we we should boycott the games, and that doesn't mean we. It means our athletes. You're you're basically saying to them, we the government are so angry with the human rights situation in China that we're going to abrogate your human rights to go and compete in these games to, to teach somebody a lesson uh, and it just it, it doesn't work so uh, I, I think the more mature uh, view put forward by by Mitt Romney and, and others is that if it's you know if it's government con conduct that we're uh, opposed to here let's send the message from the people who matter which is the government and not not force our our own people to give up their Olympic dreams. I guess you could say when there is so much that is controversial going on with China, the fact that the IOC chose it for the games reinforces what you're saying that politics don't play a role in the decision, right? That's certainly been, you know, the the the, the dogma that we have endorsed. I mean, it doesn't, it is not a political judgment. You know, there's, there's alleged genocide going on in this country. Once the Olympics are there and are happening, does the IOC ever address the controversy? Does it, does it ever counter it with messages about the Uyghurs or an acknowledgement of their rights? Is there any mention of any of that or would there be? No, we, we we try and keep governments out of the Olympics altogether. I mean, government governments are not invited to the Olympics. Yeah, the, the, the president of China 
is the only government official who will say anything. And he has a scripted one sentence um, to utter, which is written by the IOC, mm-hmm. which he, he simply declares open the games. Uh, and that's it. The government's involved in the sense of helping to provide security and, and, and that sort of thing. But it, it, yeah. But it's not, there's no operational or policy involvement of, of any government in any Olympic Games. When you have, you know, a government like China spending billions of dollars to put on this, this glorious show of humanity, but then in this province tucked away in this province of their country, there are millions of people possibly being tortured. Does the committee ever worry that it just kind of that it taints the Olympics in any way, that it, it makes the Olympics look bad because it's staying out of it. Well, that's, that's the hard part of the decision. Yeah. You, you, know, you know that abuse is going to come. You have to say, look, we've got to stick to our aspirational goal of what sport and the Olympics can do. It's not easy, not, not without personal difficulties in some cases. The fact, sure. though, that everybody else bowed out and you're left with China and Kazakhstan does that tell you something about the cost of these games it, it, that it ends up that the more autocratic governments are the only ones willing to take on the cost, plus they want to make themselves look good? Uh, sometimes in, in the autocratic states, they're, they're really only playing to their own home audience. We've had to sort of relook at how we allocate the games now because we're, we're, we were losing uh, all of the developed democracies uh, by reason of, of uh, referenda. Let's say like the worst somebody could bring to criticize the decision, to compress it into a couple of words would be, but it's genocide. What would your message be to counter that? You say it, it's it's terrible, but let's look at the, the root cause of this. It, it's it, the Chinese government. This is a political matter that is beyond the capacity of sport to solve, beyond the capacity of the IOC to solve. Tell me in your words how you feel about the decision. Well, the, the, the decision is we're going to have these wonderful Winter Olympic Games. Uh, they're going to be in China. They will be well organized. We continue to try to get the message out that sport can bring people together. You know. Think about it. You almost don't even need language with with sport. Let's look at the good and and that the you know the, the glass is half full. It's not half empty here. Yeah, and I guess time has proven that hosting the games doesn't ever change a government's behavior. What is the good that can come out of it for the people involved? You know, if you go to an opening ceremony, you see and you have a you you end up with a a much wider view of, of the world and of these different people and, and uh, you know, the different colors, different languages, uh, everything is, uh, it's an expand, mind, mind expanding experience. You know, that opening ceremony, I get choked up every single time. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really quite moving. And, and you can imagine if you're there in a team uniform, stepping onto the track behind your flag, that's big stuff. What's your best Olympic memory, Richard, from, from being at the Games as an athlete? Is there any one thing that still gives you goosebumps? 
Yeah, and I saw the track and field, and I saw Wilma Rudolph, you know, the a polio victim when she was young. I saw Cassius Clay wow. you know, in, in the flesh. And, and so you, you never forget that. And as an athlete at the Games, how much is geopolitics on your mind? Zero. Zero. <laughs> One funny thing, we used to have a gymnasium in the village and sort of try and jump up and top, touch the rim of the basket, you know, and I had long arms so I could do it. Well, we were there one night and, and in came a Russian guy called Valerie Brumel. And he was looking at this and he took about four steps back, bounded up, he kicked the rim. Oh, what? And, 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 no way. Landed, and landed on his feet. I mean, it was, uh, so you say, oh my God. <laughs> Who'd have thought you could could do that? And then, then so there are all, all sorts of things. You go home with a with a thought of those Russian athletes as human beings, and that eventually can get into the fabric of society and and change things as well, can't it? Or maybe that's just my very optimistic, nice way of looking at things. No, I I think it's an opportunity to 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 acquire that kind of a viewpoint that that yeah. you don't you don't lose over time. And as I say. The, the Russians went from being these two-dimensional villains to three-dimensional people that you know were were nervous and, and you know and you and you share something as an athlete. So, do you get used to the criticism, or does it always hurt? I, I, you get used to it to some degree. You may not change anybody's mind, but you you at least add the dimension that they may not have thought about. In our case, which is you know the the little islands of, of peace and calm every four years yeah. that that actually works and, and they say oh yeah or you're taking away from athletes their dreams uh, as a punishment by your government uh, again that they know is not going to work so people you know they often they sort of sit back and say oh i didn't think about that and, and so you can you could Make some progress. Well, wherever the Olympics always is, it's that parade of humanity in the opening ceremonies. Where, like, I get I get choked up right now just thinking about it. That you see the entire planet in all of its sizes, shapes, and colors, and all of its glory. Like we're all human beings. It always leaves me with. Yeah, and and and, and that's that's what you feel when you're there. Uh, and you're not you're not you're certainly not there glorifying the domestic or foreign policies of wh whoever the host is. <laughs> you know. well how how about like we start every nation pools their money together we build a massive floating platform out in international waters somewhere <laughs> we we hold the olympics there from now on <laughs> surrounded by plastic right? it it's um you can you can imagine the discussion you know we often say look why, why don't you get out of this and just have a permanent site and 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 then and you say well who's going to maintain it well everybody will maintain it and can you imagine the discussion in the congress about how much money are we sending to <laughs> wherever this is and that's one of the reasons that we've done our best to try and move them around. Hmm. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Let's discuss a bit with Sir Richard Dearlove. 
So what do you think about this stance of ignoring all politics, despite all the backlash that follows? Are you convinced? Well, it's a very admirable ideal. But of course, the politics asserts itself in the majority of Olympic Games in one way or another. I mean, I remember during the 50s and the 60s, you know, when the East Germans were running these sports factories, which were, of course, you know, based almost on, you know, chemical compounds. And, and I, I mean, you know, the East Germans used to sweep the Olympics in all sorts of sports because, you know, they produced these factory athletes, many of whom subsequently, you know, had ruined their lives, died young because their bodies have been so abused. And of course, you know, this was all about the prestige of East Germany. And of course, we all know what happened at the Sochi Winter Olympics. You, 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 you can't avoid these terrible, you know, political interventions. And every country you know, is tempted to use this to exploit somehow its reputation or its image personally. I think that, you know, the only solution to this problem would be to have a permanent Olympic site. And there are only two places you could have that. It would either be in Greece or in Switzerland. And, um, you know, one day I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's where we end up. And even having Tokyo 2020 at all is, in a sense, ultimately a political decision. It's clear that the uh, Japanese government have gone ahead for purely domestic political reasons, because Suga, the, the premier, you know, really has a sort of reputational relationship with the Games and absolutely doesn't want to cancel. Damaging to the Olympic movement in life. So the last time China hosted, even though it paid lip service to the human rights issue, you could say that things have actually diminished in China since they hosted last. Well, it's not. It's got worse. I mean, this is the problem. The, the incarceration of the Uyghurs in constant, well, what we would probably consider to be concentration camp. I mean, this is, it's, it's awful what's happened. When you see people really, really criticizing this and calling for action against the Olympics because of this decision, do you think they're overreacting to what one could argue is simply a backdrop to a major sporting event? Well, I, I don't think they're overreacting. The problem is that both sides of the argument have some quite powerful arguments in their favour. I agree. I do think in the case of a country like China, as it currently is, it you know, makes one feel very uncomfortable that it's staging the Olympics. You just cannot get away from that basic fact. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, its behaviour internationally is bad and getting worse. And, you know, we all cast our minds back to the 1936 Olympics. But, you know, what do we, from the 1936 Olympics, what do we, what do we remember? We remember Jesse Owen, um, you know, being so phenomenally uh, successful and the fact that his success infuriated various people. Good point. Don't you think it's ironic that the highlight of the games is supposed to be sportsmanship and fairness, but in international politics, China projects the opposite of these ideals? Absolutely. One of the things you have to remember about China is the Chinese do not really understand win-win. They only understand we win, you lose. It's hard to reconcile that. It is. And I think, you know, between now and the next Olympics, 
it'll be interesting to see how this situation evolves because politically, it certainly doesn't look as though it's going to get better. And one may, in fact, end up with the Games, which is pretty farcical because it's being boycotted. I mean, it may get so bad that, you know, many competing countries may just say, look, we absolutely can't do this. And of course, the Chinese will struggle very hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Was it the right decision, in your opinion? Was it a brave decision? Well, if I'd been on the Olympic Committee, I probably wouldn't have voted for China. But on the other hand, if you voted for Kazakhstan, that's a pretty strange thing to have done. So if you want to run the Olympics and you've only got that choice, the country which is going to do it efficiently and well, let's give the Chinese their due. But the political cost or the geopolitical cost of that decision is likely to be high, very high indeed. Thanks, Richard. Great talking to you, as always. No, well, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. And thank you for joining us on this episode of One Decision. I'm Michelle Kosinski. Follow us wherever you find your podcasts and on social media. Tell us about your favorite decisions that shape world events. We love hearing from you here at One Decision, where we delve into the minds of those playing for high stakes and whose decisions can shape our world and our lives in it.